listening to The Higher Ed Marketer, a podcast geared towards marketing professionals in higher education. This show will tackle all sorts of questions related to student recruitment, donor relations, marketing trends, new technologies, and so much more. If you're looking for conversations centered around where the industry is going, this podcast is for you. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the Higher Ed Marketer Podcast. My name is Troy Singer, and as always, I am here with my partner in creation, Bart Kaler, where each week we both interview higher ed marketers that we admire that we feel others in the community can benefit from. This week, we had the pleasure of interviewing the Associate VP of Storytelling and Engagement for the University of Notre Dame, Jim Small. And if you know anything about Jim, you know that he is known for his energetic and impactful storytelling. Yeah, it's been a great interview, and, and uh, I'm really excited to share this with everyone. I think that he really has, uh, you know, storytelling is one of those things, Troy, that I think that people think they understand, and they, and, and they know it when they feel it and they see it, but sometimes it's like, well, what does that mean, and how do you do that? And I think Jim has kind of a really creative process, and he's actually, you know, he's organized how he tells stories into five bullet points. I really like his methodology and the way that he just is very logical in his thinking. Um, and so I think you're going to walk away with a really, a lot of practical things that you can apply, no matter how big a school you are. Don't, don't be intimidated that we're talking to the University of Notre Dame. There's a lot of really practical things here. And be sure to stick around till the very end because there's a goodie that Jim offers everybody that uh, you'll want to hear about. Well said, Bart. Without further ado, let's bring in Jim. We'd like to welcome Jim Small, Associate Vice President of Storytelling and Engagement at Notre Dame to the Higher Ed Marketer Podcast. Hello, Jim. How are you doing, Troy? Doing wonderful, and we are really happy that you can join us here on the podcast. Um, in a previous conversation, both Bart and I were just uh, really impressed with both your background and how you utilize storytelling. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's way overrated from my perspective here internally, but I want to thank you too for, for having uh, Notre Dame join this conversation. So thank you for that. Very good. Bart? Yeah, Jim, I really appreciate it. I know you and I have met a couple of times at different conferences here in Indiana and uh, had a chance to get to know each other a little bit better. But I think one of the things that I really wanted to talk about, and, and uh, I think you said, you know, sometimes it's overrated, sometimes it's not, it's misunderstood, just what storytelling is and what the importance is. And so maybe just tell us a little bit about, you know, where, how you're leveraging storytelling at the University of Notre Dame and and kind of how you got into storytelling because it's it's not I mean it's something that's been around for eons but I think some it's kind of been the marketing buzzword in the last 5 10 years. Yeah, well I'm going to go back to being 13 years old in the state of Michigan and uh, working at a golf course and uh, I met a guy named Bob Kane who worked for Golf Magazine. And what I saw as a 13 year old was a guy that came in once a week with clients and he played golf for a living. That's what I saw. So I decided right then and there I wanted to be the publisher of Golf Magazine. So that set me on a, a path to become a publisher, if you will. And, and I went off to college. I played a little basketball, but I, I, uh, I really I have an advertising degree from a school called Fair State University in Big Rapids, Michigan. And there I started my first publication when I was a junior in college. And then it progressed to where I got my first interview after graduating. I got hired at a publishing company and and was there for a couple of years. I got hired at another publishing company. Then I had my big break where I was on my way to, I believe, working for Time, Inc. on People Magazine when I was intercepted by a big ad agency in Detroit called Campbell Ewald. And they were starting a storytelling division, which no one knew about at the time. 
I ended up taking that job instead. And it was probably the best decision I ever made in my life because I ended up working with a lot of huge brands and helping them tell their story. And it just led to a career for me of, of, of convincing people, wasn't their marketing, it wasn't their advertising, that was the challenge, it was their story. And we were, the last company I was involved with before Notre Dame was a company called uh, Story Worldwide that I created with three other guys. And we became the world's largest storytellers. And we were the first guys in, in Madison Avenue to tell people it's not your advertising, not your marketing, it's your story. They looked at us kind of cross-eyed for a long time. But now all you see is they're going to talk about their story, their story, their story. So we were kind of the pioneers of that, if you will. Uh, we are the first guys on the street uh, in New York preaching this, and, and it's worked out well. And, and I've been at Notre Dame uh, 3,479 days. I keep track of that. <laughs> so this is day 3479, and uh, they've kept me long uh, for a nice ride, and it's been a wonderful experience telling stories here. That's great. And I obviously, I'm sure you were in this in the storytelling business before the all the different channels of storytelling came about, you know, now, people are constantly talking about tell your story through video, tell your story through social media, all these different ways. T- tell us a little bit about how you're utilizing storytelling. I know you told a story earlier about the storyboards at a at a high donor tailgating event that that's one way, maybe just kind of walk us through that. And Maybe some of the other ways that, that uh, you know, those listening might be, you know, inspired to get their story out through different ways. Sure. I think I think the best way to start the, but for me to answer that question is probably to walk you through our process and how we tell stories. And, sure. and we started this back in New York. And um, it, there's a five steps. And I'm not very smart, so I make things very simple. Um, <laughs> I work with people much smarter than me, which is great. But the first step always is audience. We want to know who we're going to be engaging. And I want to know everything I can about them. So our team's taught to learn Step one is first question you ask, who's the audience? Who am I engaging? And learn everything you can. The second step, and this is probably the most important step, and it's what we call walkaways. And this is what we want people to think, feel, do. Think, feel, do. And this is, if I ever write a book on marketing someday or storytelling, it'll be called Think, Feel, Do. Because that's what a marketer or a storyteller does. Their job is to make you think something or feel something to drive you to do something. So we upfront establish what it is we want someone to think or feel. Because typically at Notre Dame, our job is to, is to try to convince someone that Notre Dame is worthy of their gift. So that's that gift, you know, the giving part. So we have to learn how to, what people need to think, what they need to feel. So we write that down and that helps us drive everything else. That's step two. Step three is channels. I want to know before we get started, what are the ways we're going to deliver that story? Is it an email? Is it a, an event? We even did a play once where we used a play to tell a story. Uh, is it a video? Is it a film? Just list all those channels that we're going to use to reach that audience. Then the last, the fourth part is what we call what great looks like. I want to know up front, again, what, what, what is success? How do we define that? Is it we need to raise $100? Does it mean we need to raise a billion dollars? What is that? We write that down. And then the last step is, is when we start thinking about the stories we need to tell. So the beauty of this process is I know who the audience is. I know what my job is as a storyteller. I need someone to think this or feel that to get them to do that. I know we're going to put it in these channels, and I know I need to do X. And then I start putting on the story. So, you know, when we last met, uh, we talked about uh, well, probably was my big break. And I think it was day like, I don't know, probably day 211 for me or something at Notre Dame where um, uh, a gentleman comes down, a colleague of mine, and he works in our planned giving area. And he says to me, Jimmy goes, we've got an event coming up. And uh, it's on a Saturday, a Notre Dame football game, Notre Dame versus Michigan. And we're going to have, you know, a number of people in the room. So the first thing I question I ask is, okay, who's the audience? He goes, well, they're older people, 60 to 80 years of age. And I said, well, tell me more about it. He goes, well, they love Notre Dame and they've, they've been successful in life enough so that we think they could leave Notre Dame a gift in their estate. So he tells me all about the audience. I said, great. 
Step two, I said, what's the walk away? What do you want them to think, feel, do? He goes, well, obviously do is to write, is to put us in their in state. So then we centered on what is the think or feel? So I wrote a bunch of things on a whiteboard that I thought might, that they might want to think or feel. And we centered on one thought. And the think was, we could do this too for Notre Dame. That was the job. So I wrote down, we could do this too for Notre Dame. Again, walking through this process. So I'm through step two. Step three, channels. He told me they were going to be in a big room. And uh, it was a mix and mingle event, which I kind of hate because I don't like walking into rooms where people I don't know very well. And I've got to have small talk with them and, and talk with them. So you know, I try to get people an out. So I like to put things on the outside of the room. And I like to put stories on boards on the outside of the room where you can sort of turn your back on humanity. You don't have to worry about this so much. So he goes, you know, I think I like that. So that was our only channel. So we, we, we call them storyboards here at Notre Dame. They're two feet high, three feet wide. And so he goes, yeah, let's make storyboards our channel. Perfect. I said, what does great look like? What's the success look like for you? He goes, well, if I can raise a million dollars in this event, that will be successful. I said, perfect. I write down a million dollars. So now I'm, I'm ready to think about stories. So I know that I've got to find five stories. And that we had five boards we're putting up. We need to find five stories that make you think we could do this too for Notre Dame. So here's what happens. We had we grew up with one story. It's about a family who grew up in uh, the Boston area, husband and wife. And they had two loves in their life. University of Notre Dame and the city of Boston. So they decided in their state to set aside money for the University of Notre Dame to fund scholarships for students from the Boston area to attend the University of Notre Dame. So we simply put this story on a board. So it's a beautiful two foot by three foot board. It's got a beautiful picture of the skyline of, of Boston. And then it said, a headline was a love for his hometown and alma mater. And I wrote the copy, you know, Joe and Jane Domer had two loves in their life, the University of Notre Dame and the city of Boston. They set aside scholarship money for students to attend the Boston area through the University of Notre Dame. There are currently seven students on their scholarship. That's all the board said. That was one of the five stories. So here's what happens. It's a Saturday morning, 90, 90 80, 90 people in the room, very packed. They're having a good time. They got drinks, they're, and they see these stories on boards. That night, we beat Michigan in football, which is always a good thing. <laughs> and then Monday morning, 10 o'clock, this gentleman that I'm a colleague of mine comes, calls me up. He says, are you in your office right now? I said, sure am. He goes, I've got to show you something. And he comes down with his laptop and he sits there and he goes, read this. So I pull laptop in front of me and I go, wow. And it said, dear Greg, we had a great time at the uh, event Saturday morning. There were so many people in the room. We didn't get a chance to say hi to you, but we did see a story on a board. And the next paragraph, it made us think we could do this too for Notre Dame. Word for word, what our walkaway was. Next paragraph, we'd like to set aside a million dollars in our state for the University of Notre Dame. It was game over for me. I mean, it was day 211, and it was the day that everyone at Notre Dame starts saying, yeah, maybe there's something to this walkaways and, and storytelling and so on. So you know, we know that if we can get you to think a certain way or feel a certain way, you, we have a good chance of you wanting to make a gift to Notre Dame. So that's a secret storytelling. That's great. That's such a powerful conversation, a powerful statement. And I think that the thing I like about your, your formula and the thing I really like about that story you told about the event and the storyboards is that you don't have to be the University of Notre Dame to be able to pull something off like that. I mean, I mean I've, I'm sure that a lot of listeners right now are listening are like, oh, yeah, it'd be great to be able to have the type of football games that Notre Dame has and the people who come there. Well, every school, and I don't care how small you are, you have people who can make decent-sized gifts to you. They just need to understand how can they do that too or how they need to understand what is that you want them to do. And I think that your your process of those five steps is is really a great way for them to do that. And as well as, you know, the storyboards, it doesn't take much more than just, you know, a, a little bit of time. And it could either be a whiteboard or it could even be just a couple boards that you send over to FedEx Kinko's to get done. And I think that there's power in that. And it is a 
item that is on a lower shelf that everybody should be able to reach. Exactly right, Bart, because the beauty of this for a creative person is this, a writer, whatever it is, up front, they know what their job is. So my, my creative team, the writers knew they, that their sole focus was, I need to create a story that makes you think we could do this too for Notre Dame, period. That was their job. So they knew when they got the assignment, they come back and, and we sit down and review what were these stories we've created. And we're looking at through the lens of, well, we got to make them think one thing. And it's a better discussion versus, you know, you, see, you get something presented to you and you go, I, I don't like that. Well, it doesn't tell them anything, right? And, and that's really frustrating for a, a person, a writer, designer, what have you. So this is a, it, it, it's a simple, simple process. Anybody can do it. We do it for everything. So when I sit and do anything, if it's a PowerPoint presentation, if it's a speech, whatever it is, I write down before I get started what I want people to think or feel after they've listened to me, right? And then it drives all of my content in that discussion, right? I even did that today. I was going to ask you, what did you write down today? Today, I want, what I want, I want to say is you could do this too, right? That's what I want people to think because, you know, you don't have to have big budgets to do this, you know? And, and so that's something that I've learned. And, and I had a, a year at Western Michigan before I got to Notre Dame because I was at Story Worldwide for 11 years and left my company to try something different. And then I got, I, I got the opportunity to work at Western Michigan. And Western did not have very large budgets. But we raised a lot of money really fast because we started telling our story better. And, and we found ways to, 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 to reach individuals and, and get them thinking positively about Western Michigan. And, and we're doing the same thing at Notre Dame. And, and it's simple. So, you know, anyone that's listening to us now can do this. And the thing I like about it, too, is that it applies not only to advancement and development. I mean, certainly it's successful in raising donations, but this would apply just as quickly to enrollment. I mean, if you've got prospective students or prospective families that are considering a school, it would work just as well on internal communications. If you need to kind of have your faculty understand and, and feel something that you are leading them to do. I mean, that's the power of story and the power of emotion. I think that's sometimes that idea of coupling story and emotion together. I think too many schools kind of fall into this, this trap of, well, we're just going to tell the stats. And, and you lose it because there's nothing that the, the story is the emotional part that moves from your head to your heart. Would you agree with that? I agree with that. And I've, I, I've sat down with our admissions team to talk about how we tell stories. And the one thing that happens, and, and let's say it's not Notre Dame, let's say it's another school who, who maybe is having trouble getting students to, to come to their university to, to, to enroll. What happens a lot of times is, and you think about audiences, right? You've got the the student themselves is an audience. So that's the one audience. And you've got to get them to think or feel something to say, yes, I want to go to Western Michigan or Notre Dame or, or USC or whatever the school is, right? So that's one audience. But also you've got the parents too. And so you've got to figure out what's the story I tell to that parent because here's what happens. A young man or a young woman will say, I'm going to Notre Dame. And they tell their classmates that. And also they go, why'd you pick Notre Dame? Why would you go there? Well, you, they need to have stories to say, well, didn't you know that this about Notre Dame or that about Notre Dame? Same thing with parents, because the parents get in their social circles and they're saying, hey, where's little Johnny going to school? And he goes, well, he's going to Notre Dame. Why, why didn't he pick Stanford? Why, why didn't he pick, you know, Harvard? You know, and, and you've got to give them the stories that they can defend the pick, defend the choice, so they don't get talked out of it. So to me, that's why everyone needs to learn how to tell stories that can be told over and over again. They don't have to be hard. They just have to be impactful. They can be short and sweet because you just have to get, a, get people stories that they can 
keep in their head and they can use to defend a decision or make a decision, right? So those are, there's, it's so powerful. I mean, it's the most powerful way of, of communicating as far as I'm concerned is telling a great story. Well, Jim, one additional question I have, and, and obviously all schools have been impacted in the last you know 18 months with this, this pandemic and with COVID. How did that impact a lot of the ways you guys were telling your stories? Because I mean, certainly the example you gave of, you know, a, a, a an event. I mean, you weren't doing a lot of events. So how did you guys kind of address that? Because I mean, a lot of times stories are, are kind of one-to-one personal events, those storyboards. How did you implement some changes in the midst of that? <laughs> I wouldn't call it a panic situation, but it was all hands on deck because, you know, here we are, things are going great. and We're having a fantastic year raising money and we get hit with that curveball, right? And so uh, I get a phone call from our, our VP of University Relations, Lou Nani, and says, hey, if we ever need a storytelling, it's now. And, and you've got to come up with a plan on how we're going to use virtual storytelling. So uh, the week after uh, we sent students home, we started a, the first thing we did was we started a weekly a live broadcast every Wednesday at noon. And it went about 45 minutes long. And we brought in top executives of the university. Then we advanced to uh, faculty members and so on. And we did this every single week right through middle December. Then we took a few weeks off for Christmas break, but then we back up again. And we did it all through the academic year. That was one thing we did. We also, um, uh, we did some fun things because our marching band, we, you know, Notre Dame was one of the few schools that brought students back. So we had students on campus, you know, we're wearing, wearing masks and we're all 10 feet away kind of thing. It was crazy, but we had students here and, you know, our marching band was here, all of these singing groups and stuff. So I, I reached out to our student affairs group. I said, hey, we've got all these people on campus. Um, and no one's hearing them perform. Let's put on a, a show on, on, on virtual show. So we created what we call the Notre Dame Music Festival. We went into their football stadium. We turned the lights on, and we put these performance groups on the field, and we live broadcast a concert. It went from about 7 at night to about 11 at night, four hours. Oh, wow. We had 37,000 people watch it live in over 100 countries around the world. It's crazy. And uh, that's one thing we did. We also did a cooking show called Fighting Irish Foodies. And uh, we did four of them. We would just, you know, we had people come on, uh, chefs from our university, the, the, the culinary, our food service people, and they taught us something how to do that. We would send the recipe out in advance. People could go buy this stuff. They could cook it along with us, live with the show, or they could watch it and do it later. So, you know, we did all types of things. You know, we just, you know, we, we, had, we had this focus that we can't see anyone in person. You know, we, no one's coming back for football games. I mean, it's awful for us, you know. So, so we had to go out there. So we created 171 hours of live programming. That's great. Via YouTube. So it's crazy. But that's what we've done. But, and we're taking a lot of that, Bart, that we've done, and we're, we're taking, hopefully, to this fall when we've got people back, we're still going to do a lot of it. We learned a lot. But the big thing was, you know, we, we kept communicating. We kept engaging. We kept telling stories. And we had um, so many people come back and say, you know what? I feel even more connected to the University of Notre Dame, even though I can't come back for a football game. So we learned a lot, and it wasn't easy. But you know, we were we were fortunate that we have great capabilities. We have a great storytelling team, but we also have this thing called MD Studios, and we have this broadcast uh, platform that's unbelievable. So we have we have great partners there. But I, we did a lot of this with, with a laptop and a you know anybody could do. So that's why yeah. you know I get back to anybody could do this. Anybody could do these things, but you just have to have stories to tell. Exactly. And I think that's one of the, one of the keys, because I've, I've put together a, an ebook and some presentations on marketing on a shoestring budget. And I constantly am trying to remind people that, okay, you don't have to have a $30,000 broadcast studio to do 
really good things. You have to have a story and then you have to have a couple pieces of technical and most of it's on your phone already. And if you can do that and you can, you know, put together, you know, a decent quality, authentic story, that's where your power is. And I, I love the fact too, that you got, you guys are saying we did a lot of stuff during COVID that we're not going to drop. We're going to continue to augment it with everything else we're going to do on a normal day. And I think that's really important that I want a lot of people to understand is that we all learned a lot of lessons on COVID. And as much as we want to see the whole pandemic in the rearview mirror, we cannot not do things that we learned during that time and continue on. Because I mean, a lot of schools had to go to virtual tours and virtual campus visits. There's no reason why that can't be an option. A lot of people had to go to these live broadcasts, whether Facebook Live or YouTube Live. There's no reason why you can't continue to do that. Because at the end of the day, all of our um, constituents have different preferences on the way that they like to consume uh, media, consume stories. Some of them want to be in an event, in a room of 100 people reading storyboards. Other people want to be in the privacy of their own home, being able to look at it on their phone. Um, we've got to deliver those stories in the medium that they want. Exactly. And we even created a weekly football show that was widely accepted. So now we're doing that again, you know? And, and so, you know, there's just things that we did that, and you, you see it perfectly, you know, and it's, it's, it was probably, we've saved money doing some of these things. So the beauty of it is now, as I look at our budgets for this upcoming fiscal year, we bring in some of the stuff we learned during the virtual age and we're going to save money, which is great. It was a crazy year, but it was, it was, a, it was a successful year for us because we found a way to engage our audiences and to tell stories. So it should never stop. Yeah. And I, I love it. I just want to make a point about that too. I love the fact that there's different formats to tell the story. I mean, you've talked about plays, you've talked about videos, live streams, storyboards, email, all kinds of things. But then there's also just the idea of being able to tell those stories, you know, in the context of, of whether they are donating, whether they're enro enrolling, there's always a chance to kind of do this. And, and, it, and it's really, it's just a methodology that you can apply to any size or any shape of institutions. So this is great. Jim, you've shared a lot with us today. And if you've heard of or heard the podcast at all, you know that I usually ask, hey, is there anything else that could be a quick nugget uh, that we can offer that a higher ed marketer could implement immediately? Is there, is there anything that you could offer? How about if I give you three quick tips? All right. Love it. Tip number one, and this is something I've been doing uh, since I've gotten to Notre Dame, is I try to meet with a student every week. Mm. And I ask them, the first question I ask is, take me from zero to 18. And I want to learn about their whole life leading up to coming to Notre Dame. And then I, then I take it from there. But that's something that is invaluable. And this is where we get a lot of our stories, right? So I work with the admissions office. I work with financial aid. And I try to reach out. And I do this almost every week. So that's number, tip number one. Meet with a student every week. They're your customer. They're your, your great source for stories. And they're going to be your end product someday. So, you know, that to me is, is tip number one. Tip number two is something we do here at Notre Dame. And I started this in New York. We do what we call best practices. And everyone that's on my team, whether they're on a storytelling team or my or, or our annual giving team, I hate saying my team, but our storytelling team and annual giving team is assigned either a market segment or an industry. And we do this about every Every other week we meet, but about every three or four months, I, sh I switch up what these market segments are or these industries. But what I ask them to do is to come in and give me what's what I call the wow and the how. They sold a million products in 24 hours. Wow. Then I want to know how they did. It. And then, so they present and it takes them five minutes. They do the homework. They come in and say, 
Apple sold 1,000 uh, Apple Watches in 38 seconds. Well, geez, how'd they do that? Then they talked to us how they marketed that. And then the next question I ask is, how would we do that at Notre Dame? So we have this going all the time, every other week, everyone on our team. And it's just best practice. And it's the way we learn. It's how we're looking always for next at Notre Dame. What's the next thing we can do? Anyone can do this, right? Look outside, look outside higher ed, look to the industries and, and, and other groups and find out what are the best practices they're using to raise money, sell product, whatever it is, and find a way to use it at your school. Tip three is a leadership tip. And, and this is what I've learned is that my job as a leader is to make myself available. So you need to do all you can as a leader. If you have a team in higher ed, you've got to find a way to be available to your staff. I don't do what they call one-on-ones. I don't believe in those. I want people to want to meet with me, not have to meet with me. There's a big difference there, right? If you have to meet me with me, that's not a good thing typically, right? You know, so what I want is I just make myself available. So what I, very, I have very few meetings. I do have some standing meetings, they're very few, but I just make myself available. And, and everyone on my team, doesn't matter if the annual giving team or the storytelling team, they know they could just come to my office and I'll stop what I do immediately, every single time and make myself available. So those are, that's just a quick tip that anybody can do. So those are things that I'd be thinking about if I was in uh, higher ed marketing or enrollment marketing or development marketing to, to get better. Very powerful, Jim. You have shared your wisdom and with energy and vigor. Thank you very much for being a guest on the Higher Ed Marketer podcast. If someone would like to connect with you, what would be the best way for them to do so? Uh, would probably be the, my email. I'll give it to you. It's jim.small at n as in nancy, d as in david, dot edu. And if they do, uh, I'll make this promise. I will send them uh, a PDF of, of what we call, and I think I've got one here, um, it's our storytelling and engagement plan. And this is how we tell the story. And it's, it's awesome. You know, and, and you can steal things from this and you'll make it better for yourself. But this is a document that, that we created for our last uh, campaign, uh, the Boldly campaign. And uh, it's something we gave to our entire team. This is how we want to engage audiences. So that's something that uh, I'd be more happy to share. Thank you. That's very impactful. Bart, do you have any last minute thoughts or comments before we close the show? Yeah, I just wanted to say, Jim, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you for your time and, and sharing it. And I just wanted to just kind of bring a couple things to the to the surface for everybody as they've listened to this episode, just to kind of walk away from. One, I think Jim made it very clear that this is something that anybody can do. I mean, again, I've worked with a lot of schools with 20 students to schools, you know, uh, the largest online public school in the nation. It doesn't matter your size. It doesn't matter your budget. It doesn't matter a lot of things. You can do this. You can do this type of storytelling. A lot of what Jim talked about today can be can be scaled down or scaled up to however you need to do that. So remember that. I also love the fact that um, these last three tips he talked about, interviewing the students. Mary Barr from Ball State University in episode 21 also talked about the idea of her habit of every time during orientation, sitting down with students and families and asking them similar things, one, to gather stories like Jim said, but also to kind of get a pulse on what's going on, what, what, how are they making their decisions? Why did they end up where they are? And I think that so many people talk about, well, we don't have the budget for focus groups and we don't have the budget for this. You have the time to do that. And I think Jim and Mary both have talked about a couple ideas on how you can do that without impacting your budget. It's just a matter of Jim's third tip there being available, not only being available to your staff, but being available to learning about your students just by asking them. So I think that's really powerful. And then finally, I think too, that second tip in between the other ones that I've already talked about, 
I've been a big believer because I came out of corporate much like Jim did. You know, I remember being in the uh, Motorola war room in 1999, helping them figure out how to start explaining why people would want to take a photo on their phone and why, what, what's text messaging is. And we, we did all these, uh, these flash-based things that, that their call center could use. And we put them up on the carrier websites on trying to get people to understand what these new technologies with phones, that phones were moving from being phones into what we now know as smartphones. And I remember being in that, that war room and we were sitting in there. I was, my agency was the smallest one in there. I think Ogilvy and Mather and a couple other huge agencies were in there. And, and they were kind of walking through this. But what I took away from is we were also doing a little bit of work in higher ed at that time. And I, and I would go back to higher ed and I'd say, you know, Motorola is getting ready to sell their phones to, to the teenage market. And this is what they're using and how they're thinking about it. And we were able to do that and kind of apply that. I mean, I wasn't stealing anything, but it was the idea of we are trying to figure out the way that they're doing it and then applying it over to higher ed. And I think that Jim's point of what the how and the, the wow and the how, how did, you know, wow, Apple did that. How did they do it? Wow, Target did that. How did they do that? You can apply that to anybody and just kind of keep a pulse on popular culture, on corporate, on what's going on, because the, the fact of the matter is, is Target's going to spend a ton of more money on marketing than any school will ever. And if you can kind of learn from them and kind of ride their coattails, you're going to be much more further down the road than, than otherwise. And so I think that those are really great tips. And again, thank you, Jim. And uh, it's been a great pleasure having this conversation. Thanks for having Notre Dame on the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you both for a wonderful conversation. The Higher Ed Marketer Podcast is sponsored by Taylor Solutions, an education marketing and branding agency, and by Think Patented, a marketing execution, printing, and mailing provider of Higher Ed Solutions. On behalf of Bart Kaler, I'm Troy Singer. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to The Higher Ed Marketer. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening with Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to leave a quick rating of the show. Simply tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Until next time.